Hey, again, um, good morning. Welcome. My name is Benji. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here, and I especially want to welcome you if you are new or visiting, and you have dropped in on the very end of things, and that's, that sounds dire, but we are wrapping up today our time in the biblical book of Ecclesiastes, as you can see on the screen. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it to Ecclesiastes 11, which is where we'll be in just a couple of moments. Have you enjoyed our time in Ecclesiastes? Yes, that's great. You know, I honestly, that was a sincere question. I wasn't sure what people were going to say. And uh, I want you to know that no matter how much you enjoyed it, the reformer Martin Luther probably enjoyed it more because he said this about Ecclesiastes, this noble little book, which for good reasons, it were exceedingly worthwhile that it should be read of all men with great carefulness every day. <laughs> every day. That feels like a bit much, but the point is well taken. Now, often at this point in a sermon, at this point in a sermon series, the preacher will give some kind of a review of where we've been, but I'm actually hoping that you can help me with that, a little bit of interactivity here. Here's what I want to know. How would you describe the book of Ecclesiastes in a single word? So take a moment. Take a moment. Um, Or don't take a moment. Just shout. That's good. Um, That's cool, too. Um, how would you, but now is the time to shout. How would you describe Ecclesiastes in a single word? What do you got? I, I've, heard, I've heard wisdom and meaningless. That is, that is his, the book's word, not ours. Okay, okay, good. Um, so what's one topic, what's one topic that you remember that we've covered in Ecclesiastes this summer? Work, money. Death, uncertainty. Good, good. Yes, good. All right, so continuing our review theme, the key word for the book has in fact been meaningless. It's a translation of the Hebrew term hevel. It could also be translated as vapor or vanity, and maybe some of your translations have it that way. So Kohelet, who has been the primary voice in this book, He has applied the term meaningless to many of the various topics that you just shouted out. He has applied it to things like sex and work, wealth and pleasure. And what key phrase has helped situate the action of Ecclesiastes? Where does this all take place? Under the sun. Yeah. Now, you also may remember that way back in the very first sermon on this book, we considered that it's probably best to understand that this book features the contributions of two different contributors, and it's probably best understood broken down like this. There's an author who writes both a prologue and an epilogue, and in the middle, the body is the work of Kohelet. And so the, both the prologue and the epilogue refer to Kohelet, or the teacher, in the third person, and then the middle, the body of the book, refers to Kohelet in the first person and passes along his own reflections on life. So as you can see from that outline today, we're going to be ending chapter 11 and going through chapter 12. So we're going to get one last thought from Kohelet before hearing what the author labels as the conclusion of the matter. So are you in Ecclesiastes chapter 11? I hope so. We're going to work through this passage in sections, so please feel free to remain seated. But we are going to read from Ecclesiastes 11, beginning in verse 7. I'm reading from the New International Version, but please read along with whatever you've got. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. 
But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. You who are young, be happy while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So then, banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those looking through the windows grow dim. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. When people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred, then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him. Before the silver cord is severed, And the golden bowl is broken before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well. And the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So, if this section of the passage had a theme song, it would have to be, Tonight We Are Young. (laughs) You know this song? It was released in 2012 by the band Fun. It details a night of excess and partying because the primary voice in the song recognizes simply that life is fleeting and tonight we are young. So the chorus insists, tonight we are young. So let's set the world on fire. We can burn brighter than the sun. The song is catchy. It makes for great dancing at wedding receptions. If you're having trouble envisioning it, let me help. And yes, that was your other lead pastor (laughs) in a dance battle with my son. It was awesome. The next day, one of them still felt young. The other, (laughs) not so much. Tonight, we are young, so let's set the world on fire. We can burn brighter than the sun. These lyrics could have been ripped directly out of our passage today because Kohelet insists that youth is actually to be cherished. Would you look again at verses 9 and 10? You who are young, be happy while you are young and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. 
So then, banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. In this case, the term hevel, translated at the end of that verse 10, is probably best translated not as meaningless, but actually as fleeting. In other words, youth is a brief season, so don't miss out, is what Kohelet is saying. So giving the meaninglessness of so much of life, Kohelet wants his readers to know that now, from his vantage point as an old man, youth is where it's at. And he advises folks to get after it while they still can. And furthermore, he goes on to argue that the journey of aging is not a pleasant one. In the opening of verse, verse of chapter 12, Kohelet calls aging the days of trouble. And then in the verses that come, he gives a creative picture, a poetic picture of the diminishment that comes with the advancing years. And so not all of the imagery is exactly clear, but there's plenty here that can easily be understood. The poetic description of things like onset of blindness in verse 2, loss of teeth in verse 3, the appearance of white hair like the almond blossom in verse 5 and more. So the eventual destiny of the body, from Kohelet's view, is captured in verses 6 and 7. They speak of death as a severing, a shattering, a cutting off from the land of the living until the once vibrant youth returns to dust and the spirit of a person returns to God. Super cheery, right? <laughs> now, if this is your outlook on it all, it makes sense to offer up something akin to the old Schlitz beer advertisement. Do you remember? It insisted you only go around once in life, so grab for all the gusto you can. Kohelet would have raised a cold one to that line of thinking, I'm sure. And yet, as you probably noticed, even his encouragement comes seasoned with the reality of finality. So in chapter 11, verse 8, he offers the sober reminder that the darkness of the grave extends much further than the joys of life. In eleven nine, he attempts to restrain his youthful hedonist. Know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. And then in twelve one and twelve six, he insists that even in their enjoyment of youth, the wise person doesn't forget that there is a creator to whom one is accountable. So while it may be true that tonight we are young, tonight will inevitably turn into tomorrow. And after many tomorrows, every person will come to the moment that the proverbial party ends. So Kohelet tells his readers, in your youth, both rejoice and remember. Live life to the full in full awareness of God. Enjoying the gift of life out of delight for the giver of life and in faithfulness to the one who alone will judge a life. But our passage isn't done. So let's keep reading, resuming in chapter 12, verse 8. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words. And what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. So the theme song for this section, in fact, I would say perhaps for all of Kohelet's reflections in this book, has to be, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. 
right? From the classic U2 album, The Joshua Tree, the song tells of a pilgrim's highs and lows in his search for meaning. The singer tells of a journey in which he climbed highest mountains, kissed honey lips, and even spoke with the tongue of angels. That's a resume to rival Kohelet's. Our unlikely wisdom teacher had tried wealth and work, pleasure and power. He had gratified all of his appetites. He had grown his finances and his family tree. And you'll notice in what we just read, the author points out in verses 9 and 10 that Kohelet searched with all diligence and seriousness. His report cards never came back with doesn't apply himself. (laughs) And yet... Despite all the exhaustiveness and the industriousness of his searching, ultimately, in verse 8, our author summarizes all of Kohelet's philosophy. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. It's easy to imagine Kohelet saying with a resigned sigh, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. For many of us, Kohelet's story hits painfully close to home. Many in this room today find themselves in stories they wouldn't have authored. Staring down hurt and disappointment and trauma and deep, troubling questions about life under the sun. Many of us have tried to search out all that life has to offer only to find that our souls ache for something more, something lasting, something rich. To be honest, I've walked through some of that myself this week. I've been tending to my own wounded and worried and weary heart. I've faced my own share of disappointment and dismay this week. So this message today is as much for me as anyone. Quite frankly, life under the sun is often hard. And the road can sometimes seem unjustly long. So what do we do when life leaves us short? When we've grabbed for all the gusto and still came up empty, what will we do with our disillusionment? These are the questions we are left with after 220 verses of Ecclesiastes. But, little Bible trivia for you Ecclesiastes actually has 222 verses. Now, all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Now, when it comes to authoritative sounding phrases, it's hard to top. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. And in these brief verses that end the book, the author answers Kohelet's less than enthusiastic assessment of life under the sun by insisting that Life under the sun is lived best by those who see things from beyond the sun. Who see that life is governed by a good and sovereign God. Who is seen fit to provide his beloved image bearers with his commandments. So that they may experience the joy of living in alignment with the one who will ultimately judge all things. Now I know that the phrase the fear of God doesn't land well in an age that is more ready to conceive of God as a cosmic cheerleader and life coach, one who is committed to, above all, celebrate us and help us reach our potential. But the God of the Bible was sufficiently holy to make Moses take off his shoes, to make Elijah cover his face, and to make Isaiah grieve his sins. And he was sufficiently kind 
to give us his word to tell us how life works best in this world. Friends, if we fail to allow God's otherness and holiness to create in our hearts a sense of awe and even fear, we will fail to grasp the magnitude of his grace in giving us his law. Simply put, there is no reason that an all-powerful, sovereign creator owes anyone anything at all. And yet, in his extravagant grace, this God has provided his law as a testimony of his character and a guide for his image bearers to living life according to the wisdom beyond the sun. And along comes the author of Ecclesiastes to say that having assessed Kohelet's repeatedly empty search for fulfillment under the sun, the pinnacle of human existence is found in remembering who we are and whose we are. While our hearts may look for something fancier, some secret handshake, elaborate ritual, insider, spiritual life hack, our author issues God's people this rigorously simple calling, fear God and keep his commandments. So way back at the beginning of this series, we considered that part of the power of a book like Ecclesiastes is its unflinching approach to life. This is a book that simply will not pull its punches. Kohelet's candid and repeated insistence that life can't deliver on its promises brings us to a unique crossroads of discontentment. While life under the sun is marked by apparent meaninglessness around every single corner, the resulting disillusionment, well, it can either be catastrophic or it can be catalytic. And I think the difference is captured well by Russell Moore in his recent book, Losing Our Religion. He says disillusionment can lead to awful places, to cynicism, to laziness, to inaction, to despair. Or it can lead one to let go of every other stable place and retrace one's steps to the bush of flame with the weight of glory, a bush that does not tell us why things are the way they are, but tells us only, I am that which I am. Verses 13 and 14 that close Ecclesiastes serve to only amplify the question, what will we do with our disillusionment? When the shine comes off of life, and it will, when the pursuit of all the world has to offer leaves us empty, and it will, when we finally see through the mirage, and we will, will we be crushed or will we be compelled? Will we retreat into ourselves to mourn the loss of our precious idols? Or will we run to God, who longs to gently pry our fingers from the powerless idols that we hold precious? When we find ourselves overrun with disillusionment and well aware that despite our best efforts, we still haven't found what we are looking for, the author of Ecclesiastes insists that we are finally ready to encounter the unchanging truth of God's character, his goodness, and his instruction. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. So having done its job, Ecclesiastes now leaves us to do our own work. In a way, the final two verses of Ecclesiastes throw down as firm a challenge as any in Scripture. Much like Joshua's insistence to the Israelites to choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, Ecclesiastes issues this call, choose for yourselves this day how you will live, by the wisdom under the sun or the wisdom from beyond it. As much as we may strive to avoid discomfort in most areas of life, spiritually speaking, life begins at the end of the road of self-sufficiency. 
when we've reached the end of easy answers and life has shown its cards, when the nagging questions that keep us up at night refuse quick fix religion, it is at that point when we are finally poised to take seriously our deeper longings, our heart's stubborn insistence that there must be more than this. In a classic passage from Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis offers a thought that perfectly captures this invitation, this invitation that is issued by the repeated dead ends of Kohelet's search for fulfillment. Lewis writes this, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other Never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. In that masterful passage, Lewis draws on imagery from Hebrews chapter 11. Could you turn there in your Bible? It's toward the end of your Bible. You may be familiar with this chapter. It reminds readers of some of the legends of faith from the Old Testament scriptures. But tucked right into the middle of that chapter are some verses that resonate deeply with any student of all 222 verses of Ecclesiastes. A reminder that even these spiritual giants had to maintain a view beyond the sun. So would you look at verse 13? All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Friends, these legends of the faith didn't experience the earthly blessings that we so easily mistake as signs of God's favor. In fact, skip down to verse 35. The author tells us there were others who were tortured refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. That is a road of disillusionment, if ever I've heard one. Yet for these heroes of the faith, the repeated reminders that they still hadn't found what they were looking for led them not to a place of apathy, but a place of expectancy. 
Like Lewis suggests, their unmet desires led to a deeper conviction that there was a city worth pressing on for. And if you find yourself today in a place of crushing disillusionment, grappling with the weight of life's disappointments, you are not alone. But you are also invited to walk on. Or rather, in the very next verse, you're invited to run. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Fam, our hope for navigating through the inevitable disappointments and disillusionments of life is not to look within and find better resources, nor to grow cynical and hopeless and conclude life really must be meaningless. Rather, our hope for navigating through the inevitable disappointments and disillusionments of life is to fix our eyes on Jesus. To lift our eyes to the one who walked this road ahead of us. The one who had no illusions about the way of the world. The one who left the glories and perfection of heaven to be born in a stable. The one who knew the pain of rejection by his people and abandonment by his disciples. The one who came to pay a penalty not his own. The one who was beaten and whipped and mocked and nailed to a cross an instrument of death designed to maximize both pain and public humiliation. The one who experienced the deafening silence of God when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who gave life to all things yet gave up his spirit and new death. The one who was buried in the very earth that he had formed. At every turn, Jesus knew the pain of being reminded that life under the sun is unable to deliver And yet, for the joy set before him, Jesus' perspective was firmly beyond the sun. And as a result, he's not only our substitute, but also our standard. The author of Hebrews insists that those who still haven't found what they are looking for can only hope to navigate the brokenness of our world with eyes fixed on Jesus. The one who indeed went to the grave, but three days later walked out of his own tomb conquering death and forever changing things under the sun. By his death and his resurrection, Jesus declares that life in a disillusioned world is not the final word. There is a city to come where every pain, every disappointment, every heartache, and every empty promise will be a thing of the past. A city that the book of Revelation tells us will have no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away, a city in which Jesus himself will wipe every tear from our eyes. Friends, as we navigate a world bent on our disillusionment, it can be so easy to grow weary and lose heart. So we fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who came to make a different world altogether. And week by week, we come to a meal designed to help us fix our eyes and our minds and our hearts on the one who went before us. This meal reminds us that Jesus experienced the worst of the world's brokenness in his very own body. 
when he took our sins on himself and bore the full weight of God's wrath against sin. So we take bread and we remember that Jesus allowed his body to be pierced as a sacrifice for sins. And we take the cup and we remember that Jesus allowed his blood to be shed, poured out for the forgiveness of sins to reconcile us to God so that we might live for life beyond the sun. And we do so in hope and in confidence because Jesus is not dead, but alive. He has gone before us on the road of faithfulness amidst a broken world. He has gone before us into the presence of God the Father, and he will return to bring heaven and earth together again and to call his people home to himself in a world forever made whole. Friends, this is good news for the road that we walk through disillusioning times. We're going to come to the table in a moment, but I want to encourage you to take some time in silence before you do. To let the book of Ecclesiastes do its work. To let the Spirit surface the places you've been tempted to place your trust. The things that simply cannot fulfill their promises. So that you are ready anew to come to God to receive the grace that he longs to give. We know that these kinds of topics bring up many things for many people. We'll have prayer teams on each side. They'd love to pray with you. If there's something you're wrestling with, you think, man, this disillusionment is too much. Let your brothers and sisters walk alongside you in prayer as we collectively fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's continue in our worship.